Hi, I'm Julia Adolph, and welcome to Loose Leaf Notebook, where we will explore the connection between creativity and mental health, nurturing artistry, emotional intelligence, and self-care. I'm a composer, and I will be sharing my own personal creative process and journey towards mental health, as well as inviting other artists and creative individuals to share their own inspiring stories with you. Today, I am joined by percussionist and arts consultant, Sydney Hopson, who has an incredible career traveling all over the world performing, as well as working extensively in Washington on creating legislature that will help the arts transform communities. We talked very openly today about Sydney's experience with depression and performance anxiety and how music really saved his life and his mental health. And he shares very extensively his experience uh, with systemic racism in the classical music industry. Sydney offered a lot of really wonderful advice and words of wisdom. So I'm grateful to be able to share this conversation today with you. Hi, Sydney. <laughs> hey, Julia. Good to see you. You too. I think the last time I saw you was at my Halloween party. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't have to elaborate what you were dressed as, but I, it was uh, a great costume. <laughs> no, I'll say it. I, uh, I uh, had, as I am notorious for doing, had put off preparing a costume that year, and I remember all I had was Christmas decorations. And so, one, two, skip a few, I remember... Dressing as a tree. Well, first of all, I remember the process of getting dressed as a tree, and that was tricky. And <laughs> I don't know what made me think, you know, this wouldn't be complete without Christmas lights, but I do remember staying plugged into the wall for the majority of the night. Yeah, uh, I remember you came in and you were like, hi, I need an outlet. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Also, I learned a, a great lesson. Like, if you ever want to meet people at a party... Um, coming with your own lights and being plugged into an outlet is people come to you like you don't yes. have to travel much. I was a little worried that somebody was going to like spill beer on me because then the situation would have escalated very quickly. But um, there were no disasters that night. So how are you doing with all of this insanity? Like, like so many people, you know, there, there's a lot of layers to this whole period, this whole moment, you know, we're living in. And um, some days are easier than others, but for the most part, the general theme has been I'm very grateful to get to do what I get to do, um, and part and parcel of feeling that gratitude is the weight of just, you know, the urgency of doing it. You know, it's this feeling that, lucky me, I'm an artist and I get to make and create, but also get to work, you're an artist, you live in a space where things need to be made and created. Um, but also take care of yourself and don't forget to stop and take a breath and just <laughs> set aside. So it's this constant push and pull. Um, but for the most part, it's a, it's a friction that has um, been very fruitful. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to, to be in a good place. We went to school together. And I remember at school, you were always one of the more busy people that I know. That you, you were just always had a lot going on and part of that is because I mean you were also practicing percussion 
but then you sort of developed this interest in cultural policy and were even traveling to Washington. And um, yeah, you just sort of like, oh yeah, I'm going to DC to meet with some legislators. And um, it was, we, we were all sort of, you know, just very in awe of, of the work you're doing. And so I'm curious if, if you could talk a little about that work and also are you still kind of trying to balance the two of being a, a performer and also an advocate of arts policy? Uh, yeah, you know, the, the, the short story is, uh, you know, right around the time I was entering graduate school, um, one of my very dear friends, uh, for a series of kind of complicated reasons, uh, ended up having to leave the country. And I wanted to try to help her, you know, find a way back. You know, now, admittedly, I was 19. I was I didn't know anything about anything when it came to federal policy. I thought, you know what, I, I can't seem to find any information on the Internet to help her out. So, you know what, I'm just going to I'm going to go to Washington and I'm going to see if I can just meet people in the offices who might have some information that would be useful. I book a flight to Washington, D.C., and one of my first calls was to Immigration Services and then to the National Endowment for the Arts to see is there any way you know, that I can help a friend get an artist visa to come back to the country. Now, of course, everyone I meet with at the time is kind of just confused. Like, who is this kid? Anytime I presented this dilemma of, hey, I have this friend who I believe deserves an artist visa and should be back, I was met more with this fundamental question of why should we care about a foreign artist? You know, what, what social or political or economic worth do they have that should justify our jumping into action? Right. And being met with that disconnect made me reassess everything. Because mm. once I realized, you know, if I can't answer these questions with any authority, I can't expect legislators to know either at this point, at that point in time. What started this whole venture into policy was actually just, you know, an attempt to help a friend get back into the country. And in the process of learning both the good and the bad and the, and the huge holes in the arts infrastructure, I realized, you know, one, artists individually as well as organizations could be doing so much more to integrate themselves into various social issues and political matters. And our government agencies could be doing so much more to advance the social and political platforms that, uh, that they like to broadcast but weren't necessarily partnering, you know, effectively to do so. My take was always you know, to take what I knew I knew and to sort of set that aside and then to govern my sort of pursuits based on just looking under every rock I could find. So that meant being able to go to a representative of the Department of Justice and say, first of all, what's your opinion on what art can do? Do you even have one, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is your goal at the end of the day as a prosecutor, as a defense attorney, as... A, as an engineer, you know, as a representative of the House or the Senate. And so what aspects of your daily agenda, what aspects of your career vision for yourself align and intersect with what I, deep down at my core, believe we can achieve in the arts? From what I know of you, you sort of have this approach to a lot of things in your life where you feel like, okay, well, I don't, you know, this person in power did not give me this answer, so I'm going to go find the answer myself. 
and then go back to them. Not only just figure it out, but but go back to them and say, "Hey, look at look at this. You know, you're supposed to um, you're supposed to be paying attention to this." Um, do you have any thoughts about um, what makes you that way, or or sort of how you're able to operate in that manner? We all end up inheriting a broad series of social challenges, right? We were born into the space that existed when we showed up on the scene, right? And at some point, we all figure out how we want to navigate that. For me, being an artist and being somebody who, going back to reasons, even in my childhood, I felt art had saved my life. I knew that I believed in the power of, you know, the arts to transform lives and subsequently transform communities and societies. But I also knew people well enough to know <laughs> that, you know, the resources in, you know, the resources available to us are only as useful as the extent in which we use them and to the extent that we understand them. So do you feel comfortable sharing with us how art saved your life? It's a pretty big statement. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when I was uh, eight years old, uh, my father died. And three months before he passed away, my mom had had a, a kidney transplant. Uh, because during her labor with me, she'd suffered a kidney failure. And so my, my whole life, my parents had been very ill. And uh, my dad was paralyzed by a rare nerve disease for three years before he passed away. And so growing up, um, my home life basically consisted of uh, being home, just home. You know, my... Uh, my mom mostly uh, homeschooled my brothers and I, um, largely because uh, either the schools in the area where we lived were deeply problematic, um, or frankly, we just needed to be home. We needed to be flexible enough to be able to leave for the hospital, you know, on a moment's notice or help take care of dad, you know, because we couldn't afford in-home care and things like that. And so um, the, the, my, my dad passed away Christmas of 1997. A couple weeks prior to that, I was playing in one of my first youth orchestras, uh, and we were playing this very uh, sort of beginner arrangement of Dvorak's New World Symphony. And our conductor at the time, you know, encouraged all of us to go to the uh, the Blockbuster video store, rest in peace, and uh, pick <laughs> up a uh, copy of a recording and just listen to the full piece. And uh, and I and I did. You know, we got to the dollar bin and found sort of this generic recording. And uh, I loved it because the opening of the fourth movement, which is all we were playing, I thought it was great. It sounds just like Jaws. This is great. The da 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 da. And I never listened to the rest of the piece. And about two weeks after my dad passed away, it was the first time I ever remembered seeing my mom cry. And like just really, she she was always very strong for us. Mm. And and that's not to say that crying is not a symbol of strength, but she was just always very sort of contained and very sort of rigid when she felt like we were taking cues. And I woke up in the middle of the night hearing her cry in her room, and I, and I couldn't fall asleep. And uh, that Christmas, my brothers and I had received our first boombox. It was like our first ever CD player, uh, which was a pretty big deal. Uh, and I put in the CD because I just I, I wanted to try to find a way to sleep. And so... I was turning sort of through the, the CD and I get to the second movement. And it was the first time I listened to anything that had allowed me to sort of calm my spirit and just fall asleep. The second movement, the English horn solo. 
And I listened to that CD every night for the next nine months. It was the only way I could fall asleep. And fast forwarding uh, some years down the road, and you know, hitting to this hitting this point in my early teens, where we'd hit this point where it just it, for several reasons that it kind of felt like the weight of the world was was kind of falling on my shoulders for a bit. And it was the first time where I had felt not only entirely alone, but I was really just handling what at the time I didn't know to process as depression. And really feeling isolated, really feeling like I couldn't turn to anybody, family, friends included. Um, because, you know, anyone who's, you know, experienced depression, you know, it can make you illogical, right? It can make you lose sight of the support system that surrounds you, right? It, it, it's not a matter of no one being there. It's about your ability to see and process and engage it. And at the time, I was not able to. And it was the first time I had ever had... And, and I'm grateful to say one of the only times, you know, I'd actually had um, a suicidal ideation and mm-hmm. had actually thought, you know, I don't think I can do this. Dad's gone. Yeah. Mom was struggling with mental health at this point. There were a lot of, of, lot of um, other issues, both in family life and school life, that just became very difficult to, to manage and, and really at points impossible to manage. Yeah. And I was just digging through a box of junk in my room at the time, and I found the CD that I had forgotten about altogether, mm. this this New World Symphony recording. Now, by this time, I was in college, and I I'd also learned a lot more about orchestra, and one of my first thoughts was, wow, this recording is actually pretty terrible. Uh, it was actually, <laughs> like, like, it actually sounded pretty awful, and, and that made me chuckle a little bit, because one of my thoughts was like, wow, I used to think this was amazing, like... Like, I wouldn't graduate if I played that that way, was my first thought, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and just the, that sort of moment of just, like, one, being able to chuckle about perspective, and two, remembering how the what I was experiencing in that moment, um, relative to what my mom was experiencing in the moment when I first listened to this piece, was mm-hmm. all that I needed to kind of recenter myself a bit. Mm-hmm. And realize that, look, you know, pain crosses time. Depression can transcend time. Difficulty transcends time. What matters is what you do about it, right? And just that reminder that this was here for you, at you know, that this music had been there right. for me at a time when I felt no one else and nothing else was, reminded me, like, hey, first of all, one, there are people who, you know, in my immediate network who I knew desperately needed support and if I wasn't there for them I was ultimately sort of abandoning them to the same emotional place that I was feeling myself to be in. and number two was I knew that I wanted to be able to provide the feeling and the relief and the safety that I felt listening to that music and I want to be able to provide that for other people and so that became this driving impulse for me um, as I you know, finished undergrad and continued in grad school and even as a percussionist, loving all the fun stuff we get to do in percussion, um, it was always the more lyrical aspects of playing that attracted me because it would always take me back to that moment. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. That's a hard thing to share and takes a lot of courage. So thank you, first off. 
Um, do you want to talk about, I mean, I'm assuming there was a lot of work involved in handling and managing your depression. Um, do you want to talk about any extra musical aspects of that? Or would you like to stay in the music world? Um, I mean, I just know, you know, it, it, it can, it takes therapy. It takes, it sometimes it takes medication. I mean, it's a whole, it, you have to integrate it into your life. It's, it's not a, a passing illness. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, you know, and this is where, um, my just personal, emotional, artistic experience and my, uh, racial experience really start to intersect and really start to collide, I think is more appropriate, is, you know, I, especially not having fully embraced or even processed or, you know, entertained the idea that what I was experiencing at the time was just depression. Yeah. Um, it wasn't something, like, the concept of therapy wasn't something I had really engaged. And, and also, too, knowing that in, non-exclusively, so I, I don't mean to say this in, with any sort of monolithic uh, implications, but in the small black community that I was around at the time, like therapy was was still particularly stigmatized. Yeah. And so the idea of needing therapy is something that was, was largely weaponized against mm. And so it wasn't something I really entertained, and it wasn't something that I really gave any thought. You know, it was this feeling like, you know, just, you know, you had to buckle down, you had to figure it out, you had to get your act together, right? It was this idea that you just weren't mature enough, ready enough, rigid enough, rugged enough to take on life. And yeah. that was often how it was addressed by, by people in, at the time uh, in, in my environment. I decided, you know, first and foremost, like, let me just, let me start with the friends and sort of social network that I have not revealed myself too fully about mm -hmm. these issues mm -hmm. um, because it was really just in a couple years ago about three years ago when my mom passed away that you know I you know received some just very sweet very kind you know, messages from friends and, and uh, colleagues and family members and, and to the point that my one of my initial reactions by the end of the night was Wow, you know, I'm I'm receiving support from some people that I have all but been a ghost to, you know, in recent years, and I refuse to squander this any longer. There, there are just individuals who, you know, whether it was for reasons of shame or embarrassment or even just pride, I had not revealed the extent of some very just heavy aspects of life. Mm -hmm. um, that in many ways affected everything. It affected, you know, how I navigated school, how it affected my, my home life, my artistry, creative process, all of it. And so I just decided, you know what? This is probably going to be out of left field for some people, but I'm just I'm going to reach out to them and say, hey, you know, you've, you know, you've been there over the years. We haven't talked that much, but, you know, whether it was because you supported me or because you knew my mom or because it's like, I just, you want to talk. Like, can we just get a coffee and just sort of meet up? And I think I spent the next few months going through the most cathartic process of my adult life, which was just finally being honest and vulnerable to be just 
comprehensively about, you know, the, you know, not just depression, but the reasons for it. Sure. Um, And that, for me, was a very transformative process for the simple reason of just one, just kind of letting it off my shoulders and and just releasing my guard and feeling like, hey, you know what? I'm I'm not gonna put up a front to you. You you mean too much to me, you know, for me to not unmask myself. Did you feel that there were any resources at USC um, to sort of help you with these issues? You know, it's it's hard to say for two reasons. One, um, I I didn't proactively look for them and one because I just again it wasn't a process that I had been engaging in so I in out of fairness I won't say they weren't there um with that said no one talked about them here so it wasn't it wasn't something that was circulating and I just ignored it just wasn't something I ever engaged so um that's probably the best I can say on that I, I don't think mental health is discussed in any way um, in in schools and in music school, and it's it's so important. And it's so I mean, it's important to our lives and our ability to function. But I feel like it's also important to the creation of art. Um, and it's it's just so meaningful that that you were able to connect with music during this time that was really hard for you and that it was sort of a saving grace. One of the, the sort of big mysteries of my relationship with music, and again, I know I'm not alone when I say this, is that you know, over the years I've known it as a hobby, a saving grace, a profession, a passion, the greatest single stressor in my life, <laughs> the right. heaviest burden of my existence, an existential <laughs> crisis, and like, also pretty fun. But the reality is it does all of it and it destroys, like it builds, it creates, it blotches out, it mutes, it amplifies. And so it all comes down to what do we do with it? So yeah, can you talk a little bit more about how you've you've seen or experienced music as a destructive force? What I think can be destructive about music, or I should say what how, how I think people can use music in a destructive way is more accurate, is when it becomes a tool for amplifying and perpetuating bias and prejudice. And like racism in general uh, in the U.S. and not only the U.S., but um, in this country, it's only sometimes overt. We like to say things like diversity is strength. Um, The really hard truth is diversity is not strength. Diversity is capital. What we do with it is what determines if it's strength. Because few people in world history benefited from diversity like slave owners, right? The very presence of diversity was something that was then distorted and just turned into a dichotomy and a foundation for the most hellish institutions in humanity. So the fact that diversity is present should not be enough to make people say, the system that we are engaging in is also good and ethical, right? The extent of which that diversity is used to 
gain insight and to shape the dialogue and to build sensitivity and openness and empathy and a broader understanding of the world and how we all fit within it, that is strength, okay? But it's not enough to say that because we're all here, we're all strong. Because I've played in some very diverse orchestras that had very shady business practices, you know, and so the very presence of putting us all in the room and saying, okay, you're here, now go play Mozart and make everyone in the audience feel good is not enough. <laughs> because unfortunately... Mozart the, didn't do it for you. You know, <laughs> and, and, and that's not necessarily a diss to Mozart, no, but it's I'm to just, say, kidding, but yeah. you know, few things in human history have proven as profitable as organizations that, you know, integrate diverse communities into glorifying white Eurocentric culture. To me, I love art too much not to keep identifying ways to improve processes. And by improving processes, I mean improve more types of lives who engage in those processes. And that means not only um, taking a magnifying glass to the very ways in which organizations utilize diversity, you know, as a tool, whether that's a a tool for human development and empathy or a tool for just you know, increasing ticket sales, um, it's important, and those those conversations matter. So um, I think music can be, and the arts as a whole can be destructive in another way, which is, um, the depending on the financial systems your institution depends on to finance your work, you can really forfeit any moral high ground you seek. And, and as an example, uh, it is not uncommon by any means that arts organizations around the country will often benefit from and actively cultivate corporate donations from banks, whether it be Wells Fargo to Bank of America to Chase and HSBC, who are still executing prejudicial and racist lending policies in communities all over the country. And so to develop partnerships that structurally and very strategically from from the bank's perspective advance their brands as being community partners while still executing the tools of uh, communal oppression are just shameful to me. And so while I understand the need to cultivate and raise funds as a consultant, a big part of my job is helping people raise those funds, um, that also has to include um, practicing economic justice and practicing economic ethics and, and ultimately saying, look, are we under the guise of partnership, exploiting the very diversity we claim to be celebrating. Do you have in your memory like a clear moment where you felt maybe that classical music did not want you to be a part of it, or that you felt outside of this art form that you were really gravitated towards at such a young age? Oh yeah, Um, most of my adult life. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean look, the, the, the simple truth of it is you know, every major orchestra in this country, for every and major and small, mid-level, etc., for every orchestra that you look at that has either refused to either engage or program diverse content, you know, and I'm I'm gonna even get into personnel issues. We'll just talk programming for right now. Sure. For every institution that has refused to even consider programming. The reality is, in most cases, there's a long series of rosters of musicians as well who weren't willing to stand up for that either and who weren't willing to say, look, I'm tenured and I'm secure and I'm going to use my weight and capital around here to push this. And so as a musician, especially coming up through school and grad school, 
you essentially look at that and you feel the totality of that. You feel that we're not playing music by anyone who looks like me. We're not talking about anyone who looks like me. Right. I'm being forced to learn about the most obscure things that people did at the most random times while everyone who looks like me was being housed, it seemed, or being attacked on the Edmund Pettus Bridge or being all, you know, all of these things right. are happening, but it's completely marginalized and pushed from the scope. And then on top of that, everyone who I feel like is celebrated so much in my field has not one sentence to offer on any aspect of this field that has anything to do with anyone who looks like me. And that's a heavy thought to carry with you, but it's a thought that many uh, in my shoes carry their entire career. You know, the good things may be good, but the bad things can be horrible, and unfortunately that's that's a pretty telltale sign of any abusive relationship, right? And at some point you have to kind of look at it and say, who is actually in my corner? Mm -hmm. Who is actually here to not just ensure that I get a job in this field, but that I can experience the dignity of being recognized by an organization that doesn't just prescribe my non-influence in this field by, you know, cloaking their business practices with you know, this sort of divine, this sort of reference to the, like a seemingly defined canon, right? Because at the end of the day, I, I, whether you're playing just straight up traditional classical era music, but especially when you start engaging in new music, you also hit this wall of like, it just seems like you can be a white composer <laughs> writing, you know, sort of for scratching on marble tiles and throwing those tiles into a trash can, which is something I have actually done. And so much money and time and capital would be invested in programming that before giving a person of color the chance to write something that for all you know may sound just like the Mahler symphonies you know and love, right? So it meant that even in obscurity, there was always a reason to marginalize you. And so that space never leaves your sight when you're navigating it because you 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 have this notion this feeling like you're somehow responsible for moving the mountain that you're simultaneously climbing and that is something that um over time only becomes more and more and more and more apparent mm. you know and so for the students who were navigating it just now i mean i'm 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 I am so happy that these conversations, or maybe not happy, but I'm grateful these conversations are happening now with the hope that, you know, today's students will live with that for less and less and less time than those who came before them. That's excellent, and I hope for that. I hope to be a part, you know, an mm -hmm. asset for them in that sense. But it's definitely something that um, always manifests in the form of this very silent, very present message that you're, this isn't for you. You can participate, but you can't control the game. So how do you find the strength to keep going? A um, couple things. One, I read all the time. Um, I find a lot of strength in other people's stories. Reminding myself that um, the music we make will always be a separate entity from the institutions we turn to to make it. Mm -hmm. And that no matter, you know, what critique I may offer towards any one specific institution or industry, you know, in a broad sense, um, it doesn't diminish the value 
of the music making and the art itself, right? right? And so I make a point to still surround myself in in all types of music, but um, I haven't, I mean, I think I actually enjoy some of the classical repertoire I learned in school more now than I did then in some ways. And a big part of that was just reminding myself to not get caught up in the human sort of problems and human deficiencies of music making um, that can, if you let it, kind of rob you of the enjoyment of the process itself. So other than reading, which is still quite analytical, what, what do you do then to relax and take care of your mental health when you're not uh, yeah, knee-deep in policy? <laughs> I, uh, my main things are reading and walking. Um, okay. I, I could walk for days. I'll either listen to music or listen to nothing and just, just walk. And it's just a place that allows me to clear my head, be surrounded by, you know, though socially distanced, um, other other people, right? And just be reminded of sort of my relatively tiny place within things. And um, and there's 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 one other reason that that's sort of a big practice of mine, which is. Uh, when I was in school, I used to have like debilitating nervous issues. Like I, I would go into an audition, just hands would be shaking. It was it was game over before it started. And I, you know, tried everything. I, I, I refused to do beta blockers. That was kind of my my one hard line. And I, I don't judge anybody who does, but for me, I knew I didn't want to feel like I needed them. Mm-hmm. And I you know, studied in a program where they were just, I mean, some folks were taking them like candy and I didn't like that. And, you know, they'd be recommended by teachers and this and that and the other thing. And I just, I couldn't, I didn't want that for myself. I was still relatively at the beginning of my audition career. It's like, I don't want to be committed to these for the rest of my life. I had seen, you know, friends and colleagues alike go through near emotional breakdowns when they ran out of them and sort of experiencing panic attacks as a result of not having them and people selling them to each other at auditions. I mean, it was just, it got, it was just one of those things that I just didn't want for myself. Um, But with that said, there was a cost for that. There was just going in auditions and and just being here, you know, and as a percussionist, this can be very, you know, again, kind of uh, a deal breaker. Right. With that said... The thing, the single thing that eliminated those nerve issues and transformed my entire career was policy. <laughs> and really? it was waking up one day and realizing, especially when I started exploring foreign policy, when I finally started to see myself in the context of the world that I lived within. And that also meant seeing some deep flaws in the music industry. And when all of a sudden I no longer associated my self-worth and my just basic, you know, human worth to my performance or to the judgments of peers or colleagues and instead saw it as a practice that I engaged with, one, because I was a human being who wanted to do it, and two, as someone who saw what the larger sort of communal, state, national, and international impact could be of this process the idea of being nervous became laughable because all of a sudden it was this thing that just had so much potential for good. I was no longer the center of my universe. 
And it just it just it shattered the ego mm -hmm. that fed all that nervous energy. Just expanding my perspective and expanding yeah. my worldview was one of the single greatest mental health benefit, you know, mental health sort of sure. exercises ever. Yeah. And so when I walk and when I read, those are things that reinforce that, where I get to just sort of reflect on that. So you've had this big breakthrough in your, your mental health in the past three years. And, you know, now we're in a global pandemic. So how has, <laughs> so now what, you know, how, how has, you know, that work kind of helped you stay afloat or have there been setbacks? Um, what, yeah, what are you doing to kind of keep yourself in a good headspace these days? Yeah. Oddly enough, I think it's been one of the most productive periods of my life. Um, and again, so much of that it goes back to the fact that my creative process is very much intertwined with my worldview. And so whether it's the pandemic, whether it's been the uh, civil unrest and policing reforms and the, the, the quest for policing reforms following George Floyd's death, um, these are events that to me actually made me, they put me in, in sort of overdrive because my thought was, okay, you have a moment that you can capture if you're quick on your feet and you're, you know, studied up enough to make a difference should you feel ready to. Now, that isn't to say that it should be expected. It sh it's not to say that it's right or wrong. It's to say that there's an opportunity that if you're ready to seize is there. Um, for a lot of folks, the single healthiest decision they could make was to just unplug and stay at home, stay in bed, focus on them. Do you have um, advice for people who, who maybe are earlier in their journey towards mental health or towards finding that clarity that you're talking about? Um, who, who are un, you know, needing to unplug right now and are having struggle, like struggling to process the news or reconnect with their creativity for so many reasons. Um, since you are in a place which you've so eloquently described how you've gotten to this place where you are, you know, moving forward, do you have advice for people who are struggling right now? I think. First and foremost, um, there really is no single destination, right? So while I enjoy the clarity, you know, that I've mentioned, um, I am fully aware that it's relative, right? So, you know, by that I mean if I, instead of being the person I am with the past I had and, and the goals I have, were somebody else with different views and a different background and different goals, I may not be at a point where I feel like things are clear. You know, it's, it's, it's very much relative to who you are and where you're trying to go. And so with that said, um, one of the reasons reading helped me so much and helps me is that it forces me to really, cons you know, constantly see the world through somebody else's eyes. Right. And it, you know, it goes beyond just empathy, right? This this pulls you to a place where hopefully it leaves you with a better ability to picture a world 
that is different than the one you're living in right now. And hopefully a situation that is different than the one you're living in right now. And the more you remind yourself that a situation is relative and a situation can and will change constantly, um, the less crippling generally it will likely be. And sometimes the only way to navigate that is to ask some tough questions, right? And I always say the older I get, the less proportionally I'm interested in what and the more I'm interested in why, you know? So why is this system this way? Why do I feel this way? Why, why am I reacting this way to that thing, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes the answer is really uncomfortable, <laughs> Yeah. you know? Um, and in my experience, it just often was uncomfortable, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think if you're, if you're just in the process of trying to get a grasp of things, one, read. Just, you know, give yourself the latitude to see a world that is not your own and see and embrace a perspective that is not your own. Number two, remember that times like this, they, they ebb and flow, right? Um, there is this fairy tale that we often like to tell that, you know, the, there's human progress is kind of this, this line, right? Um, and what I'm about to say is actually from um, Madeline Albright to me, to you. Uh, well, to an audience. I was in the room. She was, this was not a one-on-one. -on -one. Sorry, let me just, for the record, we weren't like chilling one afternoon. Um, but uh, from Madeline Albright to a crowded room that I was present in to you uh, was, look, whether it's just human progress or democracy, is the conversation about democracy. History paints a really clear picture. Um, in that the things we identify as progress, especially social progress, but even personal, rarely do they result from just peacetime, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, almost across the board, they happen because of stressors. And it's in that friction that you find the tools for growth. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean it's easy, it just means that the tools are there. Mm -hmm. And so what feels like this massive cloud over our head which it kind of is. What, what feels like this huge weight, because it is heavy, um, with it comes a tool, you know, a, a toolkit and a set of perceptions that hopefully, if you allow them to, um, can be sort of a jumping off point to say, look, right now, things are pretty rough. They're probably going to be rough for a while. Let this be the time that drives you to figure out how and just your own behavior, right? It doesn't have to be anything you've changed in society, but just in how you took care of yourself. Let this weight motivate you to be the example of how to take care of yourself. Yeah. Because no one can take care of you for you, right? And no right. one can heal you for you. And so um, for me, it also gives me hope because I realize the more I do to responsibly care for myself physically and mentally and emotionally, um, the better friend, the better citizen, the better colleague, the better human I can be on the flip side. Whatever helps you regain that objectivity will continue to benefit the world that you live in. So just block out whatever you need to block out to give yourself that clarity. And use that clarity to ask questions that otherwise might be impossible to ask when you're fielding a thousand 
perspectives and points of view and opinions. So. Thank you, Sydney. It is really remarkable and inspiring that Sydney has been able to create the career for himself that he has always envisioned and that it has grown in such unexpected ways. I wish so much that he did not have to experience um, the rejection and racism that he has in an industry that I call my home. And to see and to hear how he's really pushed through by his love of music and his ultimate belief in the power of music to transform our lives and to improve our mental health. The fact that that keeps him going um, is really just such an inspiring and, and meaningful story for me, and I hope for you as well. So until we all have safe spaces in our industries to express our voices, we will continue to create those safe spaces on our own. And I hope that this platform can be that for some people. And I'm very grateful to Sydney for sharing so much of himself so openly today. Thank you for listening to Loose Leaf Notebook. I'm Julia Adolph, and the music you are hearing is my orchestral work, Dark Sand Sifting Light, performed by the New York Philharmonic with Alan Gilbert conducting. If you'd like to hear some more of my music, you can visit my website at juliaadolph.com or my YouTube channel, which also has video versions of all of these podcasts. Thanks again.